right, if you'll join me in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for once again coming to your word and having a chance to open it. As we come tonight to the book of Lamentations, we come to a book that has uh, probably not been on our desired reading list in the mornings. It's a sad book. It's a grievous book in so many ways as Jeremiah uh, expresses his feelings over all that's taken place in Jerusalem. Yet within it are touches of hope. And we pray from it we might learn things for our own lives that you would bless us as we, we study it and as we open it. Help me to uh, enunciate clearly that which um, you have helped me to study and learn about the book. Help us to grab hold of it so that its lessons might become a part of the warp and woof of our lives. We pray that you'd bless this time now with your presence and your, your manifest teaching ability. In Christ's name, amen. As we look tonight, we're going to be in the book of Lamentations. You can go there. If you open your Bible about halfway through, you're going to find Psalms. And if you go to the right, you're going to quickly get into the book of Jeremiah. And right behind it is the book of Lamentations. Um, what is a lament? What does it mean to lament? To express sadness. Yes. And we seldom do that. Chuck, that's great. It's an expression of sadness. Um, in Hebrew poetry, it's usually set to poetry. It's done a lot of times so that we can remember what uh, the author, is, his intent was and so forth. In our society, to lament something generally means to regret it. And we seldom think about it in other contexts. But Jeremiah is expressing sorrow, deep grief over what has happened. I've given away who I think is the author of this. Um, the scriptures doesn't say, but we'll get to that presently. There's a fine piece of statuary that is done by a man named Antonio Canova. It represents the figure of a Hebrew woman in a sitting posture. The head and shoulders are slightly bent forward, the hair escaping in disordered tresses from the neatly plaited fillets, the arms pleadingly at rest with hands open on her thighs. Her eyes are moistened with tears, gazing wistfully upon the ground, and the face is expressing in every feature the tender, tenderest pathos of sorrow. The whole figure seems to quiver with irrepressible emotion. Every part is molded with grace and is susceptible to the deepest passion. But it is the passion of an inconsolable grief that is being expressed. The genius of the artist is that he has sought to idealize unhappy Judah, weeping amid the scattered fragments of national ruin. It's a reproduction, really of the same sad image that appeared on the well-known medal of Titus, struck to celebrate his triumph over Jerusalem. A woman sitting and weeping beneath a palm tree, and below is inscribed the legend, Judea Capta, Jerusalem is conquered. It is startling to observe how exactly the heathen conqueror copied the poetic description by Jeremiah of the forlorn condition to which this beloved country was reduced. These words describe a pathetic picture of grief for a ruined city. 
Lamentations begins in chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. The word how begins the book. It's an, not an interrogatory as we would use it. How are you? Or how do you do this? Instead, it's an expression of complaint or grief. It's the Hebrew word ekah, and it's always used to express dismay. How has this happened? How could this be? How could God have done this? Is, is more or less what is being expressed when that word is first used. The Hebrews named the book Loud Cries. And that word is repeated over and over again in, the, in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. And each one of those laments begins with that word. And so they named it Loud Cries. It was later called Lamentations, being so called by the authors of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. I think it's safe to say that this is one of the least studied books in the Bible. Especially in America, we do not deal well with grief. What happens at a typical funeral? We hear that someone has died. There's a mad rush by some of us because we care about someone to their home to express condolences, to seek to express comfort. We bring dishes and we do things like that. We help a widow through the, the preparations for the, the burial and all the things will take place there. We plan very carefully a funeral service in the church. And then we have that service. We commit the person into the ground. And two weeks later, we have gone on with life. We see the grieving widow. We mention her husband. The tears come. And we wonder, how come she's not over this yet? We're over it. She ought to be over with it. And we want to move on. We're giving her suggestions, things she can do, how she can keep active, how she can move her life past this point of grief. And if she stays in that grieving condition where the tears readily come for a month, we begin to talk about the need for counseling. This has become a depression that's too deep. She needs some pills. She's got to get some sleep and things like that. This book offers no pills. It offers no aspirin. It offers no succor to the people who will read it. It's meant to cause them to dwell, to remain in a sorrowful condition until they have realized all that has transpired, all that they have lost, all that God brought about. And that's the purpose of this book. It's to commemorate and help us to remember God's destruction of Judea, God's destruction of Jerusalem. It's also to help them dwell in that place for a while. You know, if grief comes to someone and is too quickly relieved, how many of us know a widower who goes out and gets on a chat line and he's married two months after his wife has been buried? He is not really grieved. He is forestalled the grief. He has put it aside. He has, he has grabbed after some kind of relief, and it's always a false relief that is done. God wants the people to dwell 
upon this sorrow for a while. And the author's purpose was complete. From the time of Ezra, from the time of, of the uh, rebuilding of the city, this book has been read on the anniversary of the destruction of the city every year, every year, up until today in the synagogues. It's usually done in August, on the 9th of August. We Americans weep too shortly. We don't know what it's like to grieve. And so we don't like to read this book. How many of you have ever heard this book preached? One of you, two of you, you know, it's seldom preached. It may be touched on, a line or two read out of it, but it's not preached through. Because we don't want to sit in grief. We want to look to the future. We want to ask and, and pretend like everything is going to be bright and everything's going to be glorious. But I think this book has a lot of things to teach us. In it, we find Jeremiah, who I believe is the author of it, coming and helping us to reconcile ourselves to what true sorrow is. He wrestles with the dynamic dissonance in his own heart, knowing the truth about God, and yet looking at all that he has brought about, the total destruction of the city, in a way that even Jeremiah could not even have imagined. So we've talked about the purpose of the book. It's written in poetry. That's its form. Why does it is written in poetry? How many of you, if I started humming a song, a popular song from back in the 60s, could start singing along with me? Oh, sure. <laughs> no, we got the young people are going, I wouldn't know anything about that. But when I see people with my color hair or where there used to be hair my color, I know that they could do that because those are poems put to music. This is a poem, and it's put in a form that is designed to help people to understand it. Almost everybody, all the scholars agree that Lamentations was probably written after 586, sometime before 534 B.C. That's the length of period of time of the captivity of Jerusalem, exiled into Babylon. Most believe that the verses were written before 561 B.C. when evil Merodach, the king of Babylon at that time, released Jehoiachin from prison because that would have given the people a modicum of relief and hope that God was once again stirring up someone on behalf of his people. And so they don't think it happened, was written after that. They know that Jeremiah, whom we believe was the author of this book from Jewish tradition and other things, was the one who sat and was part of the destruction. He had an opportunity to go to Babylon. He could have gone and been well cared for, promised by the, the captain of the guard. If he would come with him, he would take care of him. Jeremiah refused and stayed with the people. He stayed with the people, and then later on, they rebelled against Babylon, and they forced him to go with them to Egypt, where he probably died. So Jeremiah is probably the one who wrote this, and he gets very personal as he shares and as he talks about the things that were going on in the city. The translators of the Vulgate and the Septuagint attributed authorship to, of Lamentations to Jeremiah. Part of that probably came from 2 Chronicles 35:25. There we read, Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. 
and they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they're also written in the, in the Lamentations. The book of Lamentations doesn't record a lamentation for Josiah, the last good king of, of Judah. But this reference to Chronicle in Chronicles connects Jeremiah with writing lamentations, of writing poetry to commemorate a sad event, something that had taken place there. There are also stylistic parts of this that are very coincident with what we read in the book of Jeremiah. If we had read through some of the sections in Jeremiah and we compared them with that which we find in Lamentations, we would see that these two dovetail completely. The vocabulary is much the same. The stylistic manner of expressing themselves is much the same. But though the book is probably written by Jeremiah, I agree with J. Sedlow Baxter, who said, although probably written by Jeremiah, the book is very intentionally anonymous. In order that anyone, uh, to allow anyone to identify with the grief of I am the man who has seen affliction, <coughs> verse 1 of chapter 3. <coughs> Additionally, in the Septuagint virgin, version, taking on this idea that the uh, book was written by Jeremiah, it starts this way with a, uh, a, a um, sub, uh, prescript. What do you call that? A prescript. Okay. And it came to pass after Israel had been taken away into captivity and Jerusalem had been laid waste, that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented this lamentation over Jerusalem and said, and then we begin verse 1. So they attributed it to Jeremiah. They saw Jeremiah as sitting on a hill in chapter 1, observing. He's an observer. He's watching the city, and he's seeing within it, and in his mind's eye, he's calling into words of poetry all that he saw take place within the city. And he is, he's just st sitting outside. Who does that remind you of in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, outside of Jerusalem, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking upon the city and predicting her destruction to come in 70 AD. Very reminiscent of that. And if Jeremiah sat on the same hill, it would have been a precursor to our Lord doing the same thing. You have in your papers there a timeline of Jeremiah. It shows the uh, kings that were, um, and the prophets that were a part of all of this. You see that Jeremiah's time went all the way across the top here, and that he was privy to beginning his, his prophecies in the time of Josiah, all the way through till the last captivity of the people of Israel, of Judah, going into Babylon, and the writing of Lamentations there. So that gives you kind of a perspective. It also tells you something of the theological setting of this book. God's wrath toward Judah had been building. Back a hundred years before this timeline begins, you have the reign of Hezekiah. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah after Babylonian emissaries have come, when Babylon was not yet an entity that, to be reckoned with. And they ask Hezekiah, what have these men seen? And Hezekiah showed them all the splendor of his kingdom. And Isaiah had predicted there would come a time when all that glory would be transported, taken away, and brought and taken to Babylon. So a hundred years before this time, God is predicting if you continue on the course you've been going, you will be destroyed. 
We come into the time of Josiah, the last great king. Things are prospering. All is happening. It's, it's a good time. It's a time of pure reform. The high places are being cut down. The grottos and groves where people have been worshiping Baal and others have all been mowed down. Hezekiah or Josiah is going through and destroying them all. And here's a sober-minded prophet predicting a destruction to come. Alongside him, other voices come in. We have during the reign of Habakkuk, or the reign of, of Josiah Habakkuk, he confirms the message of Jeremiah that a day of destruction is coming. He was not popular either. His reign, he saw the death of Josiah, and he saw the two succeeding kings who came after him. And then his prophecy entered. And then we have Daniel. Daniel swept up in the first <coughs> captivity group that went off to Babylon. Daniel, as a hallmark of hope, living in the palaces, influencing the, the kings of the Gentiles who will be overseeing Jerusalem and overseeing Israel, re reminding the people that God has not forsaken you. You are under punishment. You have been deported. You have been exiled. Your land is vacant. It is empty. Your heritage is gone. Your temple is destroyed. All is thrown down. But God is still in your midst. I, Daniel, testify to the fact that God still is a work among our people. And then a fourth prophet that also spoke was that of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a common man. He was among the common people. And Ezekiel was swept up and taken with the captives into Babylon, but not placed in the palaces. He was among them. And his purpose was to tell the people there is still hope. Though God has, has judged you, he has not forsaken you. He is still at work in us. Turn to him. Live and prosper in this land, but prepare your hearts for the day when the captivity is over and we can return to the land. And so God is merciful even in the midst of judgment. And that's a lesson we need to hear even as we read some of the dirges that are written here. God will judge. He will judge a nation and he will judge them severely. But it does not mean that he will forsake his people. He will never do that. He'll be with us even in the midst of all that. As I said, this is a poem. There are five laments here. Each one of them is, is written in a specific way that coincides with the Hebrew alphabet. I'll get to that in a second. The book, again, is chiastic. You know what that means, right, by now? Simply put, it's a chiasm is a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. So we have A, B, C, and then we have B, A, and that's the structure of it. Five chapters, each one of them a separate lament, each one of them written in a, an acrostic form except for chapter five, and each one of them, the first two, A and B, point towards the middle. They point towards that central part. In Hebrew, that central piece of the chiasm is the important part. It's what God wants us to remember. So they look toward that. Then as we reverse that, we hit C in the middle and we reverse back to B and to A. Each one of those look back. It's a little bit like us reading the Old Testament, looking towards Christ's coming and the promises of that 
then we live through the New Testament Gospels at Christ's coming, and then we back away from it, always with our eye on that cross, and all that happened is we come back through the rest of the New Testament. As I said, um, the books are poetry. Chapters 1 through 4 are in a, a meter that you and I don't understand. This isn't poetry like um, violets are red, or roses are red and violets are blue, you know. I'm colorblind and so are you, you know, whatever. You know, um, it's not written like that, and so to us it's not poetic. But to the Hebrews it was. But the meter of the poetry causes you to stumble. Every second line of this, this uh, of the verse that's there is written in a shortened way. So you're going along and you expect the next line, the, the second line, to be like the first and carry out a theme of the same length. But it doesn't. It stops quickly. And it's, it's called the kinometer. The kinometer, the second line is one beat shorter than the first line, giving an incomplete or limping expression. This is one who has been harmed by all that's happened and they're stumbling forward as they're talking. They're limping into the, the future and that's what it's meant to convey to give you that feeling of one who is stumbling forward as they go through this. Ray Stedman said this and I'll quote this the book of Lamentations is unusual in the way it's put together. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet which begins with Aleph the equivalent of our A and ends with Tau which is the equivalent of our T. The letter Z comes somewhere in the middle of the alphabet. In this book of Jeremiah's Lamentations, chapters 1, 2, and 4 form an acrostic, each chapter consisting of 22 verses, each verse beginning with one of each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in sequence, beginning with Aleph and ending with Tau. Chapter 3 consists of 66 verses in triads or triplets, in which every verse making up each triad begins with the same letter of the alphabet. So there are 22 groups of three altogether, one for each letter of the alphabet. This causes that chapter to have double emphasis as it forms the heart of the book. These chapters have, a, have been written very, very carefully according to the rules of Hebrew poetry. Chapter 5 does not follow the acrostic plan, though it does have 22 verses. This is certainly an intriguing structure, but the real interest of this book is in its content. It's a study in sorrow, a hymn of heartbreak. And I think that really is, explains that well. In this book, we're going to learn a number of different lessons. We're going to watch as, as Jeremiah, to the best of his ability using human language, tries to express the depths of sorrow that he feels. As Jeremiah the man expresses his laments over the city and over the destruction that's within her, we also get a glimpse into the heart of God. God has judged. There is no indication anywhere in this book that the judgment that fell upon the city is laid at the feet of any other. In the book of Jeremiah, I think there are over 200 mentions of either Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. There's not one mention of Babylon, not one mention of Nebuchadnezzar in this book. It's because Jeremiah wants us to plainly understand that which befell the city was from the hand of God and God alone. He was the prime mover. He doesn't, he says it unflinchingly. 
He doesn't withdraw from it. He doesn't try to protect the reputation of God. And some people don't like this idea that God would express anger and wrath in this way. But where are we told that judgment must begin in the New Testament? With who? With the house of God. If God does not judge his people by the same standard he judges other people, then his judgment is not just and he will stand forever condemned for that. And God will judge. He did judge. He has judged. He will judge again. And he will judge any nation, any people that walks away from his commands, no matter how committed he is to them. And that's a lesson that he wants us to get. The book is a reminder that sin carries with it the consequences of sorrow and grief, misery and pain. C.S. Lewis, in his classic treatment of suffering, The Problem of Pain, says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis argues not only that it is possible to find God when life is hard, but also that in some sense it's easier than when life is good. Isn't that true for us? Don't you identify with that? Some trial comes into our life, and what do we do? We immediately go to prayer. We sit down. We, we begin to think things through. We ponder. We pause. We look at God, and we seek his face. When things are going well, we're just like my teenage son when I was teaching him to drive. I'd get him out on the freeway, and he'd say, I got it from here, Dad. You know? No need to watch me now. We're rolling. You know, I'll tell you what, it's 65. You better be watching a lot closer than you were at 25 back on the main streets. <laughs> Walter Kaiser, as summarized in his synopsis on Lamentations, what he considered to be eight kinds of suffering in the Old Testament. He said, first of all, there was retributive suffering. And that involved people receiving punishment for their wicked behavior. That's what this book is all about. Jerusalem had sinned. She had sinned grievously. She was suffering the consequences of her sin, which God had forewarned her would take place and finally did. There's also educational disciplinary suffering in which God allows people to be touched in order to teach them various lessons. Oftentimes in your life or mine, that's the kind of suffering we experience. God desires to draw us back to himself to draw us away from that which has caught the, and become a gleam in our eye and draw us back to loyalty toward him. And we will often see that in someone's life. There's also vicarious suffering, that which people experience on behalf of others. That was our Lord, vicariously suffering on our behalf that we might not ever face the wrath of God in that way. There's empathetic suffering. It's the suffering of someone who experiences when he or she enters into the suffering of someone else. David suffered on behalf of Saul and of Jonathan. His suffering was grievous because of all that they experienced and all that had gone on. There's doxological suffering. That occurs when God purposes to glorify himself through the suffering of someone. You'll remember the statement of Joseph. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You'll remember in John 9, 3. Why, 
Who sinned that this man was born blind, his parents or he? And Jesus said, it was not because of this man's sin, nor because of his parents' sin, but that God might be glorified. And so that it's a vicarious or it's a, it's a, um, a doxological suffering. There's evidential or testimonial suffering. It's suffering for the purpose of bearing testimony for something. That's the whole book of Job. The suffering of Job was to bear testimony of his love for God and God's love for him, even in the most dire circumstances. And who did, did God bear that testimony before? All the angelical host both the evil and the good. Have you observed my servant Job? And he allows Satan to test him. And all the host watches as this man remains faithful to God. There's revelational suffering, a suffering designed to bring someone into a deeper understanding and a closer relationship with God. That's what Jeremiah experienced. As God revealed things to him, Jeremiah felt them way before they actually happened as he predicted what was going to take place. And then there's finally eschatological or uh, apocalyptic suffering. It's the doom of the world we see in the book of Revelation. There comes a point when the angel flies through heaven and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. And from that point on, there isn't much hope in the book. It's just judgment. One thing after another rolling off, and it is due to their neglect of God and their refusal to turn to Him. The lack of hope in these laments is due in part to the writer's view of the tragedy as just that, divine punishment. If God has done this to His own people, what does He have in store for the world? But even as these chapters present very little hope, there's personal hope that is found in chapter 3, which we'll look at hopefully. But we, um, there's also, in each one of the chapters, there is prayer. In fact, chapter 5, the whole thing is a prayer. And in that, in itself, is hope. Hope that God would look. Hope that God would have mercy. Hope that God would, would take on and pile these kinds of things, even upon the enemies who have brought them about, Hope that God would restore his people, even according to his promise. And so it's found there as we look at that. So finally, as we read this book and as we live in the world, there's one thing we have to remember. Evil is not inexhaustible, and it is not infinite. It's not, Liz. It's not infinite. It's, timing is important. If a terminus is proposed too soon, people and their... Uh, know that their suffering has been, not been taken seriously and conclude, therefore, it has no significance. God left the people in a station of remorse for 70 years, and it had its effect. When the Hebrews returned to the land, they never again went off into idolatry. They did other things, and they, they, they rejected their Messiah, but they never again practiced idolatry. They had learned their lesson. And God's purpose was accomplished. Okay, you've got your outline there, and we're going to follow it somewhat as we go through this. I'm not going to go through it here, but you've got it in front of you, and so you might look at it, and if you have questions about where I am, then you can just ask me. 
I want to do the exposition, and as I do, I want us to get five things out of this book, and they'll follow the order of the chapters. Um, in chapter one, I want us to see that God's, uh, the, God's discipline should move us to repentance and confession. It should move us to self-examination. The destruction and misery of Jerusalem is what I've labeled that, and it's the first lament, and it divides into two parts. Again, this is poetry. There are two voices here. The first voice is an observer. In the first um, 11 verses, Jeremiah is observing Jerusalem. He's seeing her destruction. He's remembering all that has taken place within her. And then in chapter or verse 12, we, a second voice comes in. And then it's the city itself talking as though it was an entity expressing its own sorrow and its own grief and all of this. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. I've already read them, but we'll read them again in Lamentations. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard. How lovely, lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. Here was a jewel of the Middle East under the time of Solomon. Her gates were forever crowded with people coming back and forth for commerce. People were coming to the city to learn wisdom, to observe the ways of the Hebrews, to understand how they were prospering and all the things that had happened. The, it was says in the time of Solomon that silver wasn't even weighed or counted. It was so common, if you can imagine that. It was just an incredible time of prosperity. Now she's empty. She's desolate. There's a few poor people stumbling about who have no ability to even gather from the fields because they've been neglected, because the Babylonians besieged the city for a year and a half. The fields were completely neglected. There is no produce. There is nothing coming into the city. Those who wander about, wander about with the tumbleweeds and whatever else was blowing through the city, she is empty. She is devoid of comfort. She is devoid of anything that would bring her back to any kind of a position of hope. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. Among her lovers, all of her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Those whom they relied upon apart from God have turned against her. They joined the Babylonians in the siege. They have come in and they have pillaged the land. They have taken the gold, the silver, the, the goods. They have emptied the grain rooms. They have, they have exploited everything that's within the city. They have taken advantage of the people terribly, even those who swore friendship, who had alliances with Israel prior to the, the siege and the, uh, the overthrow. And verse 5 sets one of the themes of, the, uh, of the, this particular lamentation. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. The Lord has caused this. This has come about because of God's judgment upon his people. Over and over throughout the book, Jeremiah goes back to that. This is the hand of God. This is the hand of God. And he affirms that over and over again. That theme impregnates every thought through the remainder of the book. 
Then in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1, we get the cause of the desolation. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. This is a picture of a desolate woman, despoiled, raped, left unclothed before everyone, exposed completely. And there's no greater shame for a Middle Eastern woman than to have her, her herself exposed that way. Sherry and I lived in the Arab world. Sherry dressed as a Western woman. She didn't wear the hijab and all that kind of stuff because in Amman, you didn't have to do that. One day she was going up the stairs outside the, uh, to get up to the street level outside of our apartment. As she walked up there in a normal dress that was down below her knees and what we would consider very modest, two little boys, six and, and seven years old, who happened to be neighbors of ours, were sitting there talking about her legs and, and talking about what a shame it was that this woman walked around the streets with her legs exposed like that. Now, you and I go, whoa. Now, can you imagine being stripped naked and left before all the people in that way? That's the picture of this woman. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for my enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has been seen the nations enter her sanctuary. The ones at whom you commanded, they should not enter into your congregation. This is the violation of it all. The holy sacred temple now has foreigners wandering through it, gazing at it like an exhibit, a monument to their gods who have destroyed and overthrown the God of this place. Those whom the Hebrews were forbidden to intermarry with now have absolute access even into the Holy of Holies. And Jeremiah is stunned at that. And so are the people because they had a view that as long as the temple stood, God's presence was there and the country was inviolate. No one could ever defile her. And that has all been brought to, to naught. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives to themselves. See, O Lord, and look how I am despised. The people have spent all that they have. There is nothing more for them. There is no food. There is nothing available. So Jeremiah is looking down upon this, and he is appalled. Then in verses 1, uh, chapter 1, 12 through 22, the voice changes. It moves from third-person narrative of the observer to first-person. This is me. I am expressing it. It's the voice of the city. Verses 12 through 15 give us four metaphors that are used to depict the anger of the Lord of God against the city. Uh, reading there, 12 through 15. Can I get somebody to read that just in your whatever version? <clears throat> Uh, 12 through 15? Yes. Uh, is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there's any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones, and they prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgression is bound. By his hand they are knit together. 
They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Okay. And here we get this expression. Uh, you can see this through the eyes of a widow, but the city is pictured as a widow. It's the oppression. It's the horror of how the husband was lost, how the family was crushed. It's what we might expect to be expressed from a, a, a deep and, and a loving Christian who has been in a horrible car accident and wakes up to find that a husband and several children have died in the accident and they're left alone. They have no visible means of support. Their health is broken. They're not sure exactly what they're going to do. And in it all, they know that God is sovereign. But somehow, for some reason, he has brought that into their life. Their comforters come. They speculate as to why it was that God did this or God did that. None of that is a comfort to them. All they can see is how broken their life is. In one moment, all that they had was taken away. In one moment, everything was destroyed. All their hope is gone. And that's the kind of expression that's here. There are four metaphors that I said that are here. Fire throughout Scripture is, is a picture of total judgment. It, it destroys even stone. The sandstone was heated to a point where it cracked and broke, and they could dig through it and break it apart, and it was easier for them to get into. And fire leaves nothing untouched. If you've ever had a fire in your house, you know that one room may have been completely destroyed by the fire, but the smoke and all that other stuff goes all through the house, and it affects everything that is in there. And uh, in the second picture, and there's a fire that comes into this person's bones. When you are severely deprived of food, a lot of times you'll have a fever. If you've ever had a really bad fever, it soaks into your very bones, your arms and legs ache. It's not just your head any longer, your whole body aches and there's no relief for you. There's no position of comfort. There's no place where you can find any soothing thing for yourself in the midst of such a fever. And then there's a net. Nets were used to ensnare and surround. Um, we don't fish with nets, at least most of us don't, but um, I, I fly fish and every once in a while I'll catch a fish and I'll, I'll hook him in the net and once I've got him in the net, he's done. He can't go anywhere. Now, I fish in some educated rivers. The fish are very well educated by other guys that have caught them and it seems like once they get in the net, they just lay there. They don't wiggle anymore. They just go, get the hook out and get me out of here. You know, they know it's all over with. The net was one of those things that surrounded you. It didn't matter which way you went. You were faced with a, a stop. You couldn't go anyplace. You were, you were trapped in this spot, and there's no relief coming. A yoke. What does a yoke symbolize? A guidance. What? What? A guidance. Well, Okay, yeah, it's, it's a guidance, it's a harnessing of strength. Um, a yoke forces an ox to pull a load. What ox wakes up in the morning and goes, man, I can't wait to get out in the field and plow another furrow. You know, they don't want to put that yoke on. You know, they learn to do it because they've been disciplined often enough. But a yoke forces them to do something they don't want to do. It restricts the freedom of the ox. Sin is a, a yoke like that in our lives. 
We reach for something because we think it'll bring pleasure or comfort. And that which we sought to bring relief into our lives, a lot of times becomes our master. We had a neighbor in Oregon. He was addicted to methamphetamines. When we knew him, he was in his 50s. He had no teeth. He was homeless. He lived in a, a shack that his parents kept their gardening tools in, which didn't even have a solid roof on it or a, a windbreak. The, the boards were put together in such a way that the wind came through there. And he would wrap up inside of that in a blanket. And if you were in our part of Oregon, it rained an awful lot. It was miserable in there. And, you know, in all of his adult life, he had never had his own independent mailing address. He had been like this ever since high school. Reminiscing that first hit of meth had been for a kick. And that which he reached for, which was designed to bring pleasure, suddenly became his master until it ruled his whole life, ruined his family, life, ruined his parents' trust in him, ruined all of his relationships, and as we watched, he just kept progressing further and further on down. Under the yoke of meth, this man had lost everything. Under the yoke of sin, the people had reached for what they wanted, the glitter, the gold, the whatever it was, and it had become their master, and it had swept away all of their hope. It offered nothing for them now. Sin is a master. And men are enslaved by it. We know that from the New Testament. The wine press. God had set Judah and Jerusalem in a press, and he's squeezing the very essence out of her. She is going to be squeezed until the last drop of punishment and discipline has been exercised. There's none to comfort. The, the verse or the chapter ends in prayer, though. Look at verse 18. The, righteous, the Lord is righteous. I have rebelled against his command. Hear now all peoples and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore the strength themselves. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious." In the street, the sword slays. In the house, it is like death. All of this is to point out what I said at the first. God would have us to do this. When suffering comes into our life, the first place he'd want us to turn is to look inward, to do a self-examination. Is this due to my sin? Oh, Lord, reveal to me the sin of my heart. Reveal to me anything that stands between me and you. And when that thing is revealed, small or great, confess it. Confess it and put it before the Lord. Ask him to look upon you in a new way and seek his forgiveness. And that's what Israel, what Jeremiah is calling Israel to do. Recognize your sin. Confess your sin. He can confess it on behalf of the city as a prophet, but it is their sin and they must confess it. The great lesson for us here, too, is that God will punish. He will discipline. His discipline, though, is a manifestation of his love. We read in Hebrews 12, 6, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Our suffering may not be directly caused by sin, 
like that of Jerusalem. Even so, we're to look there. Finding any iniquity, we're to confess it. We're to then look up to God, remembering his character and seeking his forgiveness and move on with him, trusting him. Every time we sin, there is a temptation that comes into our life, and that is to not trust God. God designed something for a test. I call it a knife's edge. The word for test and temptation in the New Testament is the same word. And when something comes into our lives like suffering, we are on this knife's edge. Satan tries to pull us off one way into temptation. Forsake the Lord. He's forsaken you. Turn away from him. God designs it to draw us closer, to pull us to himself. He designs it as a test. Satan tries to make it into a temptation. But whenever suffering comes, the first place we ought to look is inward. Did I bring this about? Is this because of something I'm doing which God doesn't, isn't pleased with? Or is there something he's trying to teach me here that I might gain from this? And so that's the lesson of chapter 1. And we are really blitzing through the time, not the, the paperwork here. Um, okay, we're going to look at the second lament, chapter 2. And the emphasis of the second lament is God's anger at Jerusalem. In the first 10 verses, there are over 40 expressions of how God's anger was poured out upon this city. The tone of the author changes. Instead of focusing on shame and despair, he focuses on the anger and wrath of God. And here we learn a second lesson, which was previewed in the first lament, and that is that God disciplines the righteous. He must do that. Judgment begins with the house of God. The author of the book never shrinks back from that idea. God's wrath is devastating in its destruction. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Jerusalem with a cloud of his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool the day in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. A lot of people in Israel thought God would never judge the city. That he, this people were the apple of his eye. This is where he had put his name forever. The city was invulnerable to attack. You remember when Sennacherib came down with his million-man army and he was going to attack the city? We learned about that last week. And Hezekiah took the, the decree of Sennacherib into the temple, laid it before the Lord, and he prayed. And the Lord said, not one arrow will come against the city. 185,000 died that night. That was a good thing. It was a blessed deliverance. But the people said, our city is magic. No enemy can assail us. No enemy can overcome us. God dwells in our midst. We can do whatever we want because we're his chosen people. We are the sons of Abraham. And that attitude was totally destroyed when they broke through the walls, the Babylonians did after the siege, and came in. 
It says in chapter six, or verse 6 of uh, Lamentations chapter 2, He has laid waste His booth like a garden, laid in ruins His meeting place. This is speaking about the temple, that, that center where God's glory, the Shekinah glory had come down and filled it so that none of the priests could enter it. It was the place where God had erected His name among all the nations. And the people said, if God is defeated... If anything ever happened to that temple, it would mean God is too weak to protect himself. And God said, I'm not too weak to protect myself. My design is this place, which you count on as some kind of a magic place to keep you protected, will be destroyed. I am not afraid to destroy that which I have built because I can always build it again. And that's what he did. The point is God was willing to destroy the very place that he had built to glorify his name among the nations. Is there a lesson in that for us? Do you think he won't judge America because there's some Christians in it? We are a people who are generous in many ways. <coughs> what happened when the hurricane struck down in Haiti? Millions of people poured out their dollars, fives, tens, hundreds, whatever they could afford to help people down in that city. We are a generous people. Of all the nations in the world, we have sent out more missionaries than any other group. We have done a lot of good with the power that we've been given, but we've done a lot of evil also. We have been selfish and we have protected ourselves. And even now, God's name is profaned openly in the public square. You cannot go onto one of our major campuses and stand up and begin to talk about Christ without facing incredible opposition. And the worst place where all of this is taking place is in our pulpits. I'll just choose things that will make you feel good. Come and listen to me and I'll tell you how good God is and how he wants to prosper you. And, and how if you'll just follow his ways, he'll bless you and give you every material desire you have. And they preach that kind of garbage and they neglect to say that your sin will find you out and God will judge and that is the message of Lamentations. The Lord determined to lay waste, verse 8. Determined to lay in ruins the walls of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. To lay out a line, to stretch a line, is usually used as a term of building. It's when you carefully lay out a wall so that it's square and so forth. God, with just as much care as the builders, laid out the, the bricks of the temple, laid out his destructive plan until systematically all of it was destroyed. God will destroy believers and he will destroy churches where he finds fault. He will destroy nations. Witness um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, the communion supper. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Witness what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. God is starting the church. Two people with prominent names, apparently, you know, imitate Barnabas, who had sold some land and given all the proceeds. And they came in and gave part, but they acted like it was the whole. They wanted to be found righteous. They wanted to be found good in the eyes of the people. And God judged them severely. God will judge us for our sin. He's not afraid to do that because his name is at stake. You and I bear the responsibility of, of bearing his name before people. 
If we live unholy, unconsecrated lives, we defame the name of the Lord, and he will tear down our, our fortress. Lamentations 2.9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. That's a picture of hopelessness, abject hopelessness. All that they might have hoped in is gone. It's awesome when God um, comes to do that kind of thing. What I pick out from verse 9, though, is, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. A significant point of judgment here is that when God refuses to speak, he withdraws. He no longer gives vision. He no longer gives inspiration. He no longer leads a people. You remember back in 1 Samuel um, chapter 28, Saul had been forsaken by the Lord. He was desperate. He went to a woman, a witch, and had her conjure up Samuel. Samuel comes out and he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. God stopped speaking to Saul. And that is a form of judgment, probably more dramatic than any other. Remember when Jesus was taken to Herod? The scripture tells us that Herod longed to see him because he had hoped to, to have a chance to, to question him about things or probably said, you know, turn my water into wine. Let's see some kind of magic trick here. You're the latest, greatest entertainment to enter Jerusalem, and I'd like to see you perform for me. And so he questioned Jesus at some length, and the scripture says, but he, Jesus, made no answer. There's no sense talking to you. I'm done talking to you. That really happened to the people of Israel too when, when God began to speak in parables. When Jesus began to speak in parables, it was so that those hearing would not hear, those seeing would not see, nor would they understand. It was because God stopped speaking when they refused to listen and to obey. So the grief is, is horrible here. Um, Jeremiah's grief goes from second person to third person, and I better move on through here and, um, and not read too much more of this. But there's a lesson that, that I want us to get out of this. For some people, we have trouble ascribing this kind of anger, this kind of devastation to God. They would judge his people this severely. It's wrong for someone to be in the presence of evil, though, and not be angered by it. God was in the midst of evil. People who gave lip service to him, and he judged them severely. To truly love the good is tantamount to God, or to God. If God tr truly loves the good, he must judge evil. He acts to judge the wrong. It's easy for us to skip past that and to blame other people when we have trouble in our lives. We run into a coworker who subverts what we're doing, maybe takes our good ideas and passes them off as their own, who prospers at our expense, or uses every particular incident to run us down in front of the boss to make themselves look better. Or there's the negligent doctor, doesn't catch something, doesn't do a good job as he's supposed to do, and tragedy ensues because of that. 
Or there's the ignorant boss who doesn't seem to understand anything about us and how we operate. Or there's the hurtful spouse. I know none of you are married to a hurtful spouse, but my wife is married to one. Every once in a while I say something I shouldn't say. You know, some of you guys are closing your eyes because you don't want to hear this anymore. But, you know, but isn't that true? Well, what about you ladies? Do you ever say something, you know, sort of, you know, you know, and maybe I'll get it if I say it a little louder, you know, a little more firmly, you know, or there's the overprotective parent guarding their kid from every particular thing. There's the greedy businessman. There's the lawless thief. All of these may well be the blame for the trouble in our lives. But for the Christian, we have to be aware of stopping there and becoming practical atheists. When we attribute to these the prime cause, we presuppose that God is some distant deity on another planet. That he's not involved in our lives. The book of Lamentation tells us God is intimately involved in all of the activities of our lives. Scripture pictures a very involved God, one who knows every sparrow that falls, one who knows every hair that falls from our head and counts them. Our God has promised that all things work together for good for those whom he loves, for those who are called according to his purpose. And he is at work, even through pain and suffering, to bring that good about. For those of us who accept that idea, though, we have to be aware of reading too much into it. We can begin to micro-interpret things, and this is one of the dangers of our age. The traffic was heavy, and I missed my appointment. I wonder what God's saying to me. He's probably saying you should have started early, <laughs> you know? I mean, it, why would we wonder if God is trying to speak to us in that circumstance like that? But we get down to where we're, we're kind of looking at everything and examining and trying to find some mystical meaning in it all. Can I suggest something to you? Just stop trying to interpret those circumstances. Go back to your Bibles. Read those. Let God speak to us through that, his ever more sure word. He can speak as loudly as he needs through that means. He can guide our lives so much more clearly through that than he can by us wondering why this thing came about in this way or that way. Okay? Now here I'm going to step away from our outline. I'm not going to go to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the heart of the book. We Americans listen to that which we hear last most clearly. I'm going to save that for the last. <laughs> so we're going to go on to uh, the third lesson, which is found in Chapter 4. And this is an important one for us as a church. It's also important for those of us who are leaders in the church. And that is leaders bear much responsibility for the condition of their people. That's the lesson God would want us to have out of this. It's found in chapter 4. It's a grave responsibility that they have. Look at Lamentations chapter 4, verse 2. Verse what? Verse 2. Verse two. Verse two. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hand. He's focusing here upon the fact that 
the leadership especially suffered during this this captivity it was they who bore the brunt not only of the babylonians for they challenged the people to resist the babylonians they resisted the message of jeremiah and of ezekiel to go out and, and let the babylonians in and to live at peace with them as best they could they were the ones who fomented the rebellion they are the ones who who drug on the, the siege for a year and a half until finally babylon came in and they bore the brunt of the anger of nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar when he finally came in. Look at verse 5 there in chapter 4. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Verse 7. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in their streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. That means they were held guilty for all the death around them in the city. This is your fault. You neglected to listen to the, the prophets. You would not let us open the gates. You are responsible, is what he is saying here. Away, unclean, they cry. People cried at them, away, do not touch them. In other words, we're not going to help you. We'll help somebody else before we will help you. This is your fault. The people weren't completely right in that, but they held their leaders accountable. Verse 16, the Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. They were treated as lepers. They were shunned. They, they were the ones who bore the brunt of God's wrath, but they also bore the brunt of the people's wrath. And there's a lesson in that for us. And God has a special ire for those who lead in the church who do not do so rightly. If a pastor doesn't preach the Bible or preaches his own ideas, when Sherry and I were, were seeking, we thought we were seeking the Lord, the Lord was drawing us to himself, we would go to churches. Have you ever heard a sermon out of Time magazine? <coughs> I have. If you went to one of the highbrow churches, you might get one out of The Economist. You know, it's a little bit highbrow or magazine. We got their ideas. We heard a sermon one time from a guy about his favorite kinds of Christmas cards. It had nothing to do with the birth of Christ. That's a false prophet. It's a man leading people on their merry way down the weary window to death and destruction. And God holds them with a special disdain. And our nation is flooded with them. People who will pick and choose what they will teach out of this so as to tickle ears and not offend anyone. We're well acquainted with a church in our area here who will not preach a Mother's Day sermon because they might offend someone who had abortion. Does that make abortion right? Does it, you know, we're not condemning you because you did something like that. What we're going to say, though, is God holds life with sanctity. It's something's precious to him. It's a part of his image. We have seen churches that preach more psychology from the pulpit than they do scripture. And it's all designed to make people feel good. And God is angry at those things. What happens to men who preach well? Men like Travis, men who stand up for God. 
you know, I call people on the telephone who visit the church. And I don't usually get an earful. People are much more polite than that. But if I do get something niggling around the edges, it's I've never heard anybody preach that long. Or, you know, really, was there that much in the passage? I, I was amazed at that. And what they're saying is, I don't think there was all that much. There was that much in it that it required that long to tell it. They're not used to it. And not only that, but they don't like it. It's a divider. Travis stands up and he's talked from the pulpit about the fact that he's willing, if necessary, to go to jail to keep preaching the full counsel of God. And people will come and do that. You want to do an exercise when you get home tonight? Look up the name John MacArthur on Google. After you get past Grace to You and some of the other things, you'll get to the detractors. You'll get to the ones that are telling you what a heretical person he is and how he's preaching a false gospel and so forth. He is vehemently disliked. Why? Because he names names. Well, Paul named names, you know, Demetrius, you know, and a few of the others. We could probably go through a list of them. Sometimes you have to do that. I'll never forget when he got after the guy that was the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral. He called him out. He said, you're preaching a false gospel. What was his name? Robert Schuler. Schuler, Robert Schuler. You cannot believe the outcry that went around through the church circles over him daring to name someone from the pulpit who was teaching a false gospel. What was he supposed to do, you know? Use euphemisms, you know? He wanted to warn people away from that ministry because it was leading them to destruction. And he's not the only one. You can go to Mark Dever. Look him up. He's well known as a person who, you know, preaches a false gospel. He's a heretic. Not really, just named so by those who are the detractors. It's vital that people be, our leaders, be dedicated to God. Your job and my job in this church is to hold Gary accountable, to hold Mark accountable, to hold Travis accountable. We need to be Bereans. Examine what's being preached. Examine what's being given. Commend them for keeping on the straight and narrow and hold them accountable if they slip off. Travis has personally told me, if you ever see something you think I'm doing wrong, please come and tell me. I'm a man and I will make mistakes. That's the attitude of a good leader. Okay, fourth thing, and I'm going to go through this really quickly. Fourth thing that God would have us learn from this book is found in chapter 5, is to teach people to pray. It's to teach them that God's character never changes. God may be judging the people, but he has made promises to Israel. I went through those four different prophets that were preaching simultaneously with uh, Jeremiah, the other three prophets and, and Jeremiah, the things that they were warning the people against. We went clear back 100 years before Jeremiah came on the scene, and we learned about Isaiah warning the people, and there were other voices that I didn't name. God consistently warned them. In each one of those books, if you go through Isaiah, which we have, if you go through Jeremiah, which we have, when we go through Ezekiel, you'll see that God warns and God says judgment is coming, and then God promises a renewed future. 
And the whole of chapter 5 is designed to cause the people to rise up and pray, to seek the Lord, remembering that his character does not change, that he has judged them, but his judgment will not abide upon them forever. There comes an end point to it. And God's mercy will continue past his judgment. And that is the point of all this. One of the hardest things to, to find when we are in deep trial over a long period of time is consistency of prayer. I have a friend named Steve Cruzy, and um, Steve wouldn't mind if I named him. He fell off a dock at work, fell down about six feet, and threw his shoulder out of joint. The doctor didn't catch that by simply looking at it, an incompetent doctor, and sent him to a physical therapist where he firmly tore up all of the muscles holding the, the shoulder in place. And uh, finally, he's had, I think, four operations on his shoulder. He finally had one on the other shoulder because he overused this arm, trying to protect this arm. And uh, Steve is in constant pain. He has two muscles that hold his whole arm up that are attached barely. And so every time this arm hangs down, it weighs and it pulls against that joint. And he's in constant pain. He can't sleep more than about an hour at night because every time he moves, the shoulder is in new pain and he has to wake up, resettle himself, get it calmed down and go to sleep. He's gone the drug regime and he's afraid of being addicted. So he's pulled himself off of all of that. It's not easy to comfort him in a situation like that. Finally, all I can say to him is, Steve, you've got to trust that God is in this, that God is good, that God loves you, and he has a purpose beyond anything we can see here, and seek him in prayer. Over the years, I watched Steve, this was going on for about five years before we left Oregon, I watched him growing in Christ. He really began to seek the Lord. When you and I are in suffering and pain, don't walk away from prayer. At least pray. At least ask God why. At least ask God to reveal to you what's going on here. At least ask him for the strength just for today to get through this day to move forward. And we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. God will still be on the throne tomorrow. At least pray. That's the message of chapter 5. And I want to spend our last little bit of time that we have here on chapter 3. Chapter 3 is labeled the prophet's response to divine judgment. It's the third lament, and it really brings out this truth that God's character never changes. As I mentioned previously, it's a lament, an acrostic, and triplets. Each one of these is designed to bring this section to our memory and to cause us to concentrate on it. The chiastic structure of the book comes to the fore here with its length. It's twice as long as any of the rest of the book, and it's designed purposely so that when the Hebrews read it, it went on and on and on. The very core of the book is chapter 3. The very core of chapter 3 are some of the verses we want to look at because they talk about the faithful love of the Lord. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 verse 1 begins, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand and again and again 
the whole day long. He says the man rather than a man. I think the purpose is he's highlighting the personal nature of suffering. Of all the people who suffered, Jeremiah probably suffered the most because he suffered with the heart of God. It was compassion that caused him to, to follow God, to announce the judgments to come. It was compassion that he used to warn the king, even when the king threw him into the pit and left him there to die. It was compassion and God's heart for the nation that kept him preaching, even against all the odds and against all the people that wanted to shut him up. His suffering was very deep. But it was a personal suffering, and he brings the suffering down, not from the, from the objective side of the city to that of the man who is suffering personally the judgment of God. Jeremiah suffered all the deprivations that the people suffered after Babylon despoiled her. He suffered the slavery. He suffered the lack of food. He suffered the lack of water, all the different things that they were going through. He suffered. And he suffered it individually in his own heart. Suffering is collective, but what it boils down to for each one of us is it's all individual. It doesn't matter that we're all suffering from the same thing. There's small comfort in that. It really is how much I'm suffering, my own individual thing. And that's what he concentrates on this. In some ways, I think what Jeremiah is trying to picture for us in this talking about suffering as a personal individual is like the suffering in hell. The suffering there will be individual as God allows each man to suffer the ultimate discomfort of being his own God. As the only fitting object of worship, each individual God will have to manufacture his own solace, which will be eternally inadequate. There is no comfort that can come from us individually. It has to come from something external. Jeremiah first expresses that suffering in an intense way personally, and then he remembers. Then he looks to God. Verse 3-7 says, again, personally, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. When someone's truly suffering, the suffering continues day and night, on and on and on. There's a feeling of hopelessness. The pain has no horizon. There's no relief at dawn. It's dreary. Turning in any direction only brings the same wall of affliction. There's no hope found in prayer or in any other activity, it would seem. There's no relief found in any pleasure. Verse 17 says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. That memory is gone from my mind. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you just can't take one more day of it? You know, some of us can identify with that. A lot of us have never had that happen. I personally have not experienced that kind of grief. And I, am, I praise God I haven't. I don't know what's ahead tomorrow or, or next week, but right now I can say, praise God, I haven't had to go through that. Now I want to read verses 19 through 40. In fact, let me get Gary. Would you read that for us? You got your Bible open there? Chapter 3, verse 19 through 40. 19 through 40. Yes. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down with, within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good to the one who should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it come to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a man, why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Okay. I want to focus on verse 21, starting there. It says, This I will recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is not his faithfulness. It's always third person, your faithfulness. He is now in the presence of God. He's talking to him heart to heart. Jeremiah remembers God in his affliction. He remembers the nature and the character of God. He remembers who he is. He remembers all that he sees about him is God's justice portrayed, but God's love has never failed. It will continue on and on and on. He remembers the promises of God toward Israel. He remembers the known character of God. The Lord and he, she starts on that third person. The Lord is the Lord, the Lord, and then you. And there, there it comes into that personal thing. Nelson's Study Bible has a quote that I liked. It said, as long as we contemplate our troubles, the more convinced we will become of our isolation, our hopelessness, our inability to extricate ourselves from the present trouble. But when we focus on the Lord, we're able finally to rise above rather than to suffer under our troubles. Verse 22 speaks to the steadfast love for the Lord. That is the Hebrew word hesed. And here I want to quote R.C. Sproul. He says, There may be no more significant Old Testament description of how God relates to his people than this Hebrew word hesed. I argue that the best translation of this term would be loyal love. God loves his people genuinely, immutably, loyally. Both the love and the loyalty are, of course, tightly bound together. That is, just as one cannot love capriciously, so one cannot be loyal without love. God is for his people and will never cease to be for them. We would be well remembered if we remembered this idea. When suffering comes to us, we have to remember what? That Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. He laid down his life for us, the sheep. He is our sin bearer. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is our intercessor. 
He prayed for the Lord to the Lord on our behalf in John 17. He is at the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for us now. His loyal love never ceases, though he chastens and disciplines those whom he loves. And his discipline can be harsh, but his love, his hesed, never fails. Like any loving parent, God's commitment to us causes discipline to punish us as necessary, but his love does not fail. We have some friends who live in Montana, Gary and Izzy Creamer. When Jake, their oldest child, was about 16, he got hooked into drugs. It led him down a path that he finally ended up in New York City, homeless and so forth. And he ended up in New York City on the street, sharing needles and, and doing other things that were not promising of a long life because of Gary and Izzy's love. Gary and Izzy, Jake had stolen from him. He had lied, he had cheated, he had nearly burned down their house. They sat him down and said, son, we love you. Our love will never, ever stop. But we cannot have you in our home. You are destroying our home, even as you're destroying yourself. Because we love you, we will not allow you to continue on this path in our presence. Go out. Go where you will. We will be praying for you as you go, wherever you are. We will always let, pick up the phone, and if you say you want to send us a click call, we will always talk to you. You are always welcome back in our home when you forsake this sin and come back to Christ. Jake went and was gone for several years. He still suffers the ill effects of the drug use, the hepatitis, the other ravages of disease that were in his body. Jake called one day, and he said to his parents, does that offer still stand? Can I come back home? They repeated the conditions, but said it stands. Will you send me the money? Will you promise to spend it on what we send it for you for, a bus ticket? Yes, I will. Jake showed up. Jake is now a youth pastor in his town. With all the stuff that went on, that loyal love of those parents stands out. That's God. He will discipline us, but his loyal love will never cease. He will not discipline forever. And there's a verse that I really like here. It says, um, oh, where is it? Verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, that word hesed. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God's judgment doesn't come because that's his disposition toward us. His disposition is love. His heart is always for us. But his heart commands him to do that which he must do to correct our way that we would come back to him in fullness and become productive and glorifying to him. So his discipline has that aim. His heart, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of, the man, of men. Those verses are at the very center of the book of Lamentation. They, you might know God's heart. Temporary discipline, yes. Hard discipline, absolutely. To the max, if necessary. 
but that is God's heart of love, which he is always willing to turn around for us. There's a lot we can learn from this book, a lot of things that are here that are unpleasant to read, but I hope this has been informative to you. I want to close just with this thought. There's a poet who wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way and left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word she said, but oh, the things I learned from her when by sorrow I was led. Sometimes God has to shout to get our attention and pain is his megaphone, but it's always done through his gracious love. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this book and thank you for Jeremiah expressing his heart to us. We've glimpsed a few things here. There's much more that could have been said, but I pray that this has been enough. Thank you again for the chance to open these pages, to read of your heart, even in discipline towards your people. Our hope is found in the fact that your love is unfailing. It is always, always available to us even in the harshest of circumstances. We thank you for that, for your character, which never changes. And we praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.